Welcome every, everybody to Nectar Dangerous Ideas in Drug Development, episode number eight. As usual, I'm your host, Anthony Joshua. I'm a medical oncologist at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre, uh, working with Nectar, New South Wales Early Phase Clinical Trials Alliance, an organisation which is tasked to bring patients to trials, as well as um, encouraging the development of um, pharma activity uh, within Australia and bringing new biotechs to and pharmaceutical companies to the country. Today, we're very lucky to have with us two homegrown drug developers, Dr. Christine Schaefer and Dr. Rachel Deere, um, to talk about Kembe Therapeutics. Um, so I will now hand off to Christine, I think initially. Uh, Christine, what we normally do is just give us a bit of an idea of your professional journey for the listeners, uh, where you've been and how you've ended up where you are now before we turn to can be and um, what's happening in that exciting area. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks for having us. It's exciting to be able to talk about our journey. Uh, so I'm a breast cancer researcher. I did my study in Australia, so I did my PhD in Melbourne, and then I ended up doing a postdoctoral experience in uh, Boston at MIT with Bob Weinberg. Uh, I had a wonderful time there thinking about how we can understand the different biology of cancer, how cancer cells are constantly changing and evolving. And one of the key concepts that we have been focusing our research on is trying to understand the dynamic adaptations that cancer cells undergo in response to different microenvironments, so metastasizing to different organs or how they might change in response to different types of treatments. And one of our fundamental discoveries there was this idea that cancer cells can really often switch states so they can become less aggressive, more aggressive. And that this might be an opportunity for us to think about how we can translate that science into new therapeutic strategies to treat cancer patients. And so as part of that work and those discoveries in the States, I returned to Australia and it took up a LIPED position here at the Garvin Institute. And during that time, we were looking at ways to um, develop um, or test therapies that could be quite rapidly translated into the clinic. And so the approach we took was to look at different, I guess, drivers of these, what we call cell state transitions. And as part of that, we discovered that the androgen receptor was a really important component of this dynamic switching processes. And so we then went out and looked for different androgen receptor inhibitors or antagonists. And there's quite a few out there because they're, you know, um, some have been clinically approved, as we know, in prostate cancer. Um, but they hadn't been used effectively in breast cancer. And especially our focus has been triple negative breast cancer. And so as part of that journey, there was one of the drugs uh, that worked particularly well in our preclinical models was this drug Severterinol, which is a dual CYP7A and Myers inhibitor and which stops the production of steroidogenesis, so stops the production of uh, ligands like testosterone and dihydroxytestosterone. And, and at the same time, it also directly binds to and inhibits the androgen receptor. So it has this dual mode of action where it blocks the actual receptor, but it also stops the production of the ligands that um, activate the receptor. And at the time, this drug was, um, it actually came up for sale. And as part of our 
endeavour to drive these drugs to the clinic. And because we knew that this drug was the most effective uh, therapy, we needed to uh, quickly form a company so that we could uh, take over the development of this drug because um, as a monotherapy, it wasn't, it, um, it wasn't as successful as it could have been for treating breast cancer. And so our work had shown that actually it's worked beautifully when it was used to stop cell state transitions and especially when those transitions were happening in response to chemotherapy. And so this was a really a new way of using the drug and a new um, therapeutic strategy targeting cell state transitions for um, to stop the progression and to stop the emergence of chemotherapy-resistant disease for cancer patients. And so based on that, we formed Kempi Therapeutics. And so I'm the uh, founder of that and now currently the managing director. Great. Well, that's an exciting point to just pause, um, keeping the audience on their tender hooks. Now, Dr. Deer, um, just give us a bit of an overview, if you will, about your professional journey and then, I guess, segueing into how you got involved with Christine. Thanks, Anthony, and thank you for having me today. So I'm a medical oncologist and specialise in the management of breast cancer and have really um, done that for 10 years since being at St Vincent's Hospital. Prior to that, I worked at the Marta with Professor Fran Boyle, who's an eminent breast cancer oncologist that probably um, was really my mentor in treating breast cancer. Um, I did my undergraduate degree at UNSW and a PhD at Sydney University. Um, and I was very lucky to be introduced to Christine in 2019, where she um, showed me the preclinical data um, which showed the benefit of the combination of Sevaterinol with chemotherapy. And for someone without a, a, a lab background, even I could see what an amazing response uh, that it was having with chemotherapy. And, um, and really that's what's led to our um, partnership in testing this drug in the clinic. And it's been a really exciting journey to be on with Christine and, and working together with the Garvin Institute and St Vincent's Hospital to bring this drug to our patients in clinic. Great. So Christine, back to you. That sounds like a um, real endorsement. Talk us through, if you will, I guess, about Sevaterinol, um, where it was, and then your new preclinical data to suggest its new use. Yeah. So um, there are many androgen receptor inhibitors that have been used as monotherapies to treat breast cancer. So enzalutamide's been tested, bicalutamide, abiraterone. And, you know, in the last, it was around about 2019, the clinical trials were coming to an end for sevaterinol. So the newer, uh, the newer inhibitor in that class, it's very similar to abiraterone, it's similar mechanisms of actions with that dual function of inhibiting ligand production and antagonizing the receptor. The main difference is that sevaterinol is a synthetic drug, whereas abiraterone is a, a steroid. And so we have much higher efficacy with sevaterinol targeting the CYP17 layers function and also um, higher e efficacy in targeting the androgen receptor. And so we think that that really underlies, um, is part of why it is proven preclinically to be so um, so much better than abiraterone or enzalutamide. You know, so clinically though, these inhibitors 
um, having been tested in breast cancer, in triple negative, and also in ER positive, there is some efficacy. You know, you do see some marginal improvements on progression-free survival, but nothing that that's ever shown that as monotherapies, these drugs are going to be game changers. And so what we were um, looking at preclinically was this idea that, um, that cancer cells can change their cell state. And so when we think about this, we'd isolated these cancer cells that um, we call less aggressive. So they're not very good at initiating tumors or they're not, and they're also not very good at metastasizing, but they're in, you know, a, an integral and core component of any tumor. And so what we were able to show was that actually when you um, isolate these less aggressive cells, when you stimulate them then with chemotherapy, it actually, instead of killing them, there are some of these cells that um, that change states. So they can switch into a more aggressive state that become resistant to the chemotherapy. And so the, the kind of fundamental biology that underlying that is that these cells are not dying in response to chemotherapy. Some of them have the ability to become or switch into a more aggressive state. And so preclinically, we were able to show that if we combined that one, that androgen receptor was a key driver of that switching process. And therefore, when we tested these different inhibitors, we could show that we could stop those transitions from happening, which means that we could keep the cells in a state that's sensitive to chemotherapy. And so we tried out this strategy preclinically and we're able to show that Indeed, when you put these, um, so triple negative breast cancer cells in mice, um, if you treat with chemotherapy, quite quickly you get the emergence of therapy-resistant disease. However, when we add in the androgen receptor inhibitor to block those dynamic transitions, then we could keep the cells, the tumours, really sensitive to chemo. And so this was having profound effects on improving survival um, but this is, you know, it's a really new strategy to be thinking about. There aren't any drugs really in the clinic that are, are targeting cell state transitions. And so um, and we were very excited to bring this idea to Rachel, <laughs> who thoroughly embraced the data and the new strategy and thinking about um, that this might actually be a good um, therapeutic option. And, you know, a lot of it does, I think, is underpinned by, you know, there's sometimes certain dogma about different drugs and and how they work and because the drugs failed in one context um i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily call it repurposing i think it's um repurposing the biology and by understanding how the biology of the evolution of resistance works then we can start to think about how there are actually existing drugs out there that are targeting a new biological process and so we were, we're so grateful to people like Rachel and, you know, St. Vincent's who really enabled us to get this clinical trial up and running. So it is an investigator-initiated trial and it's taken a lot of support from a lot of people to, to get it off the ground. So it's, it's exciting times. So with those preclinical models, you were cell lines, xenografts, PDXs, um, yeah. I guess is one question. The other question is, so your your data would imply that these cell populations emerge with treatment rather than a pre-existing and subject to selection pressure, or is it a bit of both? A bit of both, for sure. So what we know that, you know, tumours are really heterogeneous and that, you know, the tumours can have different percentages of cells that kind of already exist in that aggressive state. So, you know, there are numbers out there anywhere from 5 percent to 50 percent of a tumor might have these already pre-existing aggressive cells so pre-clinically we we're able to show two things that 
when the cancer cells are in that more aggressive state, they already have the high androgen receptor expression. And so by um, treating them with the inhibitors that we do ablate the function of those aggressive cancer cells. So we actually have this kind of dual mode of action of the androgen receptor. It's important for the existing aggressive cancer cells, but in the non-aggressive cancer cells, it gets turned on in response to the stimuli like chemotherapy. And so you have, by using the androgen receptor inhibitors, we're able to stop that process as well. So it's targeting the existing ones and also preventing new ones from emerging. And you know what's what's special about sevoterinol versus enzalutamide or, or it just appears to be special? Uh, no, I, it's... Um, I mean, we do. We have some quite solid ideas around why these things are, are different. So enzalutamide, as you know, is an angioreceptor antagonist. So it doesn't have the same inhibitory function on the production of ligands. And it also has the ability, so the enzalutamide, uh, one of its mechanisms of action is to prevent the receptor from actually moving into the nucleus to signal and to stimulate um, the receptor um, transcriptional program. And so there's, there's fundamental differences in how enzalutamide and sevoterinol work. They're both, as well as abiroterone, are very good at inhibiting that canonical function. So they inhibit, you know, what we'd expect a transcriptional program when androgen receptor is being stimulated. So they're, both, they're all good at inhibiting that um, program. One of the interesting things that we also discovered in our preclinical models, though, is that in triple negative breast cancer, and now we're seeing it in other cancers as well, is that there is a lot of antigen receptor that stays in the cytoplasm. And this is um, standard for antigen receptor. So when it's, there's not much ligand around, the antigen receptor stays in the cytoplasm. And what we've learned newly though, um, and this is kind of emerging data from the field, is that antigen receptor can actually signal in the cytoplasm. And so, um, and these are what we call the, you know, the non-canonical component of, of angioreceptor signaling. And so this involves activation of the MAP kinase pathway, PR3 kinase pathway. And so we're seeing that the fundamental differences between the drugs like sevoterinol and enzalutamide is that the sevoterinol is um, better able to inhibit those non-canonical pathways. So that cytoplasmic role uh, whereas with um, drugs enzalutamide, in some cases, we're actually seeing activation of those pathways. Um, we don't know why yet. Uh, you know, one hypothesis is that because the enzalutamide's keeping more AR in the cytoplasm, that that might be then as a side effect um, activating the cytoplasmic signaling pathways. But again, that's just um, speculation at this point. Mm -hmm. So... Um... Uh, Rachel, over to you. So it sounds like the drug had a very strong preclinical basis. T tell us how uh, the design of the pivotal uh, phase one study, um, how, how that was conceptualized and then um, how, how far we've got, I guess. 
the most important thing that Christine and I did was collaborate with our phase one medical oncologist uh, and, and one of the fellows helped us write the initial pro protocol. Um, and we decided on a two-part study. The first start was a dose exploration study um, using a rolling six design and then assuming that we didn't detect any dose-limiting toxicities and that the combination was safe. Um, we then planned uh, the second part of the study, which was a dose expansion study. And with the dose exploration, um, because we were really just aiming to see that the combination was safe, we actually enrolled all subtypes of metastatic breast cancer except HER2 positive. So we were, it was okay to be ER positive or triple negative. And we also didn't need any um, sort of biomarker specific populations. So these patients didn't have to be um, cytoplasmic androgen receptor positive either. Um, so the starting dose of serotonin we used in our dose exploration phase was 450 milligrams because that was a dose that had been deemed safe as a single agent. And we combined this with taxane chemotherapy, either docetaxel or nabpaclitaxel chemotherapy. Um, because these were chemotherapy agents that um, Christine had tested sevoteranol in combination with in the lab. Um, so we opened the study to recruitment in August of last year and we finished the dose exploration only just in November um, and we enrolled eight patients of which six were eligible for um, dose limiting toxicity assessment and we found the combination to be safe and well tolerated at that starting dose of 450 milligrams of sevoteranol. Um, and the main potential side effects of the study drug were quite mild, so fatigue and a headache, um, but we give our patients just a low dose of dexamethasone each day because this may be related to a reduction um, in corticosteroid levels caused by sevoteranol. So just 0.5 milligrams of dexamethasone a day can reduce the risk of these uh, side effects. Um, and actually very... Um, it's very exciting to see that we were achieving stable disease and um, in, our, in these patients that were treated in dose expiration. And in fact, the tumour marker um, response was often very favourable with the combination. And um, so now we've actually opened dose expansion and we're ready to recruit patients to this next part of the study, which will focus on triple negative breast cancer using the biomarker, which is cytoplasmic androgen receptor positive. So, um, yeah, so it's, it, it was very exciting. I, I can't tell you to finish that dose expiration component and see that the results were very much consistent with what we might have expected from the preclinical pre work. So that's very exciting. Um, obviously too early to assess efficacy, um, um, but um, sounds like you had a good experience so far and the patients are tolerating it well, which is appropriate for a phase one, early part of a phase one study before you go to dose, escalate, dose expansion. Mm. Great. Um, and so what, what percentage of, of, the, of these triple negatives, which is what you're focusing on now, do you anticipate are cytoplasmic AR positive? So I can um, attempt to answer that. We've, I guess we didn't say too much about the cytoplasmic um, biomarker. The, the premise behind that was that when we were looking at these TMBC patients, 
uh, and patient tumours, we had low co um, large cohorts, so um, upwards of 300 patients that we're able to stain looking to answer exactly that question. How many, how often do we see androgen receptor in these, in these patients? Um, and what we found was that when we were scoring the nuclear where you'd normally score androgen receptor um, expression, that that itself wasn't prognostic or predictive of outcome in TNBC. But because we saw so much of this cytoplasmic expression, we decided for the first time to actually score that component of the of these tumors as well. And it was actually the cytoplasmic expression that alone was able to predict poor outcome in TMBC. And so these those data were really striking. And so that that preclinical and clinical work led us to develop the um, the strategy around the phase two, the expansion phase of our study, which was to select the patients that have the cytoplasmic AR, because we think that they're the ones that are responding well to this drug and to this combination. And so in the treatment naive setting, we normally see that around 20% of TMBC patients have cytoplasmic AR expression. But the interesting part of that um, observation is that when you look at the patients that have recurrent, so recurrent tumour or that patients that have failed um, several lines of chemotherapy, that there's a really strong enrichment for the um, expression of the cytoplasmic AR. It can be around 60% in the metastatic or therapy-resistant setting that we see AR. And so that also really goes in line with our preclinical observation suggesting that that expression of AR and the increase in AR is driving the emergency of that therapy-resistant disease. It's fascinating. And then and and so that would lead me to say then this is a very clinically relevant treatment strategy because I, I guess for metastatic triple negative breast cancer, we um, for the first time have some newer drug treatments available. So immunotherapy with chemotherapy in the first line setting if the tumor is PD-1 positive, the antibody drug conjugate sasituzumab gavatecan, and usually third line, we offer patients chemotherapy, which has um, limited progression-free survival um, benefits. So if we could add severterinol to chemotherapy and prolong disease control with minimal toxicity, that would clearly be a, a fab, fantastic outcome for patients. And whether then we need to add severterinol earlier up in lines of treatment to increase the sort of duration of response to the first and second line therapies, well, that remains to be seen, but it's potentially something we could do in the future. Yes, that was my next question. So you've given the audience a bit of an overview about the current treatment of metastatic triple negative breast cancer. Uh, what about in the in the neoadjuvant sphere? Would you see a role or even as a second study looking at the drug um, in combination with standard of care in the neoadjuvant setting? I can answer some of that from our preclinical perspective. So, um, and I guess it, it stems from that observation that as the disease becomes more resistant to treatment, that we see that increase in cytoplasmic AR expression. We had one unique cohort um, of patient samples. It was a small cohort, but it had um, patient samples that had a, a biopsy before, during, and after treatment. And so here we had matched samples of how patients were progressing um, before they, so in that treatment naive, before they'd seen any chemotherapy. And then we could follow those patients until they um, ended their first round of chemotherapy. And what we found there is that 
the having the cytoplasmic AR expression at the disease outset predicted poor response to that early chemotherapy. And so our hypothesis then is that if you already have cytoplasmic AR in the treatment naive setting, adding in the severiteranol in that really early setting to, to sensitize those tumors to chemotherapy might be a really uh, important strategy for the patient so that you can get a lot more patients responding to first-line treatment. And so, you know, catching that early and preventing the emergence or the, the you know, the chemotherapy from driving um, the resistant disease in the, in that kind of biomarker positive population. Okay, and, and and Rachel, do you think you could you could assuming that the drug continues to be well tolerated and you um, <clears throat> complete your dose um, expansion, do you think you could move it into a, a neoadjuvant setting, um, or even do a proof of concept study in that setting? I think that would certainly be possible. Uh, it is now standard for neoadjuvant triple negative breast cancer to use a combination of chemotherapy with immunotherapy in the form of pembrolizumab. So you could do this type of study again in perhaps a, a sort of a phase one setting where you're testing the safety of the combination of severteranol mm -hmm. with immunotherapy and chemotherapy um, with us and then... It's similar to what we're doing now in the metastatic setting and the part two could then be looking at, you know, pathological complete response rates, which is always a nice outcome where we can get early indications of um, efficacy. Um, mm. So, yes, I think that would be possible for sure. Right. And, 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 and Christine, applications to other tumours, do you think any other tumours treated with chemotherapy, you think this paradigm could apply? Oh, for sure. I think the, the concept of plasticity, those cell state transitions is relevant across many, if not all tumor types. I think we're really beginning to appreciate how dynamic and tumors are, whether they're evolving to the immediate microenvironment, to the immune system, to therapies that we're just beginning to, you know, the tip of the iceberg of understanding that mechanistically how this evolution occurs. I think, you know, this is um, one of those fundamentals about why do patients start responding and then at some point you get no response. There's a lot to say that that's uh, selection and genetic evolution, but there's equally as much data now to suggest that there's more of these rapid and dynamic processes of cells switching back and forth between different states in the absence of any genetic mutation. So that this is just the cells responding to a different type of environment and adapting um, very quickly. So definitely those fundamental concepts I think are, are really broadly applicable across cancer types. One thing that we're also looking at though is whether this actually treatment combination could be useful for other cancer types. And so one of the ways that we're approaching that is to look for the biomarker of the cytoplasmic AR and see if it's predicting um, poor or good outcome in other cancer types as well. Right, because that's the first time as you suggested, it's the first time people have looked at cytoplasmic AR and certainly in breast cancer, potentially other cancers as well that hasn't really been looked at. But the AR is expressed across a wide range of wide range of tumours um, in some way or another. Uh, its role, I guess, is yet to be specified. Um, well, that that's very exciting work. Um, um, is there anything else you think that, that the audience might need to know about uh, Kembi um, as the company that um, uh, holds uh, the drug um, in, in terms of contacting you 
um, uh, th through Canby uh, further interest? We, yeah, we can certainly, if anybody has any um, further questions, that my email's christine at kenby.com.au and happy to, to talk to people and um, and hear any suggestions and feedback. Well, better spell Canby for the listeners because this is a podcast, so they Too can't true. see. It's K-E-M-B-I. Great. And just to just to thank again the support that we've had to actually get this up off the ground. It's been a huge, from a, a researcher perspective, to try and move the data from the lab into the clinic. And it's just not possible. It wouldn't have been possible without people like Rachel getting behind us and the phase one's unit. Uh, so, you know, a huge thank you to the team because at the end of the day, we're trying to get these new tra treatments to patient. And that's certainly been accelerated by the collaborations that we have around the precinct. Yeah, speaking with my Kinghorn Cancer Centre hat, hat on, that is certainly something that we like to assist with as a integrated um, uh, cancer um, centre uh, based in Sydney, um, working with researchers to bring the research discoveries. So um, thank you all very much for listening and looking forward to um, talking to you again. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks for having us.